Before we start today's program, I just wanted to take a moment to once again thank our patrons who support the program. Uh, if those of you that are interested in possibly supporting the program in the future, I'll have some more information about that in the middle of the program. But once again, my sincere thanks to all of you who are helping to support my efforts. Uh, the other thing, too, is that uh, I've never asked for this before, but I'd be grateful if you would, do, no matter where you listen to this podcast, that you make sure to push the like button, if you will, which will also help grow our audience. Enjoy today's program. Thanks again very much for your support. Today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? It's a favorite of our guest today. He's a film composer who enjoys creating heart-pounding, uplifting, and melodic cues that delight audiences. A graduate of USC's film scoring program, his goal is to enhance the heart of a film's narrative. Now, past scores of his include Crooked Arrows, Being Rose, and also Silent River, which will be released later this year. Now, you'll hear some cues from other composers as we go through the program, but you're also going to hear some of his. So I hope all of you will please join me in welcoming composer Brian Ralston to the program. Hi, Brian. Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Believe me, I'm, uh, I've am i been really looking forward to this. I've heard some of your music, and I love it, and I'm interested and excited about sharing it with my audience. Um, as most of my listeners know, we usually like to learn a little bit about the person uh, personally, you know, I mean, not, not their, uh, their work or career, but growing up and family and things like that. So I wonder if you could maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and growing up and, you know, what happened in the formative years and things of that sort. Sure. Well, I, um, I'm an only child. I was born in Los Angeles. Um, uh, my parents, um, were a little bit older than most people's parents. They they had me in their mid forties. So I, they were married eighteen years before I was born. Oh wow! Um, and so, you know, I I was in some respects raised by an older generation of of people, um, which which probably impacted you know how I saw things in the world and um, growing up. It was it was you know all of my first cousins were much older than me and. 
yeah. you know, 70 some plus years old. And my, my parents were from West Virginia. And so, which is a very different place in Los Angeles. Uh, dad yeah. was, dad sold lumber and he, he was moved out to Los Angeles to open a new lumber yard for Georgia Pacific. And it was supposed to be a six month job and it turned into the rest of his life. Wow. And, um, he just, they just kept him out there to, to run and manage the, the whole yard. And, um, as a result, you know, I'm kind of, kind of the out, I don't want to say outcast in a bad way, but in a good way, the outcast <laughs> family, I'm like the only one that was raised in the West coast and the only one out here. Um, I was first one in my branch of the family to have a, a college degree. Um, wow. Okay. Dad always thought that was that, you know, dad was a world war II veteran and, um, he dropped out of college to, to join the, the war back in the forties. And so he, um, you know, and mom didn't attend college. She was just, she was just mom. She was just a, a housewife and sure. very in that traditional sense. Um, so anyway, I went to the university of Arizona. Uh, well, I, I should back up. I went to Arcadia high school in Los Angeles, which has a pretty strong music program. I mean, I mean, we had a marching band with 300 some odd people in our marching band which was pretty wow unique. and uh, in a high school 300 yeah yeah Holy we were it's one of the largest marching band programs in southern california and i was i'm a trumpet player i, I played piano and trumpet um you know i started in piano in like first grade something mm. mom always wanted me to start but sixth grade i added trumpet to that and that became my principal instrument so I'm, <laughs> if i were to gig around town it would be on trumpet that's kind of my my principal. Wow, okay. And then um, I went to the University of Arizona in Tucson for undergrad. And, you know, I was not always, a, I mean, I was always a performing music person. That was a passion of mine, but I, I thought I wanted to go to med school. And, and well, I did want to go to med school. I was um, a biochemistry degree. I have a, a bachelor of science degree in biochemistry from the oh, University of cool. Arizona. Um, you know, I, I was a nationally certified EMT at one point. I worked for a neurologist for many years doing clinical research for Alzheimer's studies, for diabetic peripheral neuropathy studies and Parkinson's studies. And I was their lab guy. I would, I would, I would do a lot of FDA paperwork on these studies and, and, uh, draw blood, draw people and do all lab tests and things. And so that was kind of my life for many, many years. And then I decided I, I didn't want to become a doctor. I think I learned through that process. I learned, I was, I did a, a research study as a senior in college on a breast cancer research. And I, I developed this technique to, this is going to get a little nerdy now, chronically <laughs> alter the pH in the cancer cells of mice. And if this technique proved possible, they were going to use it then on a bigger study that involved, uh, figuring out if we can keep breast cancer from metastasizing and moving around the body. So, wow. um, so that was a, a technique I developed that ended up going on and being used in other studies. But wow. I, through that whole process, I just, I learned more that music was my passion and why I love the science of it. And I, I still have friends in the science end of all of this. Um, I, I really, it's, it taught me that's what I didn't want to do, you know? Yeah. And so I went into my sixth year in college after completing my five-year biochemistry science degree. I, I went back into music 
And I, wow. I became freshman level theory, not because I didn't know it. Of course, I knew it. I had been performing since first grade, but I, I had to officially have that on my transcript if I wanted to to maybe go to grad school music or whatever. Yeah. And so I went back into, you know, freshman level theory in my sixth year of college <laughs> and started a second, essentially a second degree path. You know, that, that strikes me as a, I mean, I've had a couple of experiences in my own life, not for my education, but other parts of my career where people said, wow, that was a gutsy decision. And, and what you're describing sounds to me like a gutsy decision for lack of a better <laughs> way of saying it. I mean, I mean, that really was that way. You took a big risk there. I mean, uh, any, any kind of thoughts now yeah. looking back on it? Well, yeah. I mean, I remember talking with the music counselor at the university of Arizona telling, telling him that I was, you know, I had a biochemistry, chemistry degree but i wanted to go into music and what do i need to do and and he said to me well you know you'd be giving up a career of financial prosperity you know as a doctor uh for one of financial destitution as a musician <laughs> and and i literally said to him i was a little bit anon i said do you think i was becoming a doctor for the money I, I wasn't, you know, I, I was doing it because that's what I felt like I had to do and my passion. And then I, over time learned that's not what I had to do. Music is what I had to do. And, yeah. and regardless of whether I'm going to be financially successful or not, this is, this is what it feels like I need to be doing. And, and wow. music for movies and entertainment and everything else was kind of my passion. It was more than just performing trumpet or, or writing music from a classical standpoint. It was, really movie music that yeah I and i and i and i want to get into that here in just a moment but yeah uh part of our program as you well know is to kind of share some of the uh cues and music that you like an awful lot and yeah one of the ones that you chose was from a film called the rocketeer and the main title which was written by james horner and so i'm you know i'm kind of curious what was it that made you want to choose that amongst your list of favorites. If, if there is one composer that I fell in love with that I really, really inspired me to do this, it, it would be James Warner. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I loved Willow. I loved the Rocketeer. I loved the crawl and I was young enough. And this is even before college. This is like in middle school, you know, high school. And I, I did not notice at the time they were all by the same person. And then all of a sudden, one day, buying those soundtracks at the time, I looked, these are all by James Horner. I yeah, must right. love James Horner. And so I became a James Horner fanatic. I had to collect everything he did. This is pre-eBay, pre-internet. There were like Usenet groups sure. in college and you would, you know, you would trade CDs with people in other states and it was like... It was it was a much different time, and um, James Horner was such an effective melody writer and 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 a great orchestrator using the colors throughout his orchestration. And I think the main theme for the Rocketeer is a great example of just great, memorable, effective movie music. You know, I, I lament that movies today don't seem to have the themes, the soaring themes, the memorable themes that movies used to. And I, I think there is a place for them. Not, I don't think every movie needs that, but the Rocketeer certainly I think is, is a much more adventurous and, and memorable and exciting movie because of his themes and his orchestra. Okay. Okay. And you know what? I mean, you're, 
you're almost anticipating some of my questions going forward. So I'm going to ask you to stop right there. Um, Let's have a listen to this. This is the, uh, from the film, the Rocketeer. It's the main title and it's written by composer James Horner.
you've kind of alluded to it a little bit, but maybe I'd like for you to expand upon it. Um, what led you to your interest in film music? Cause that's kind of a, you know, I, it sounds to me like it was at an early age and that's, that's kind of a weird thing to really, I you know, to be into at such an early age. Well, of course I love movies. I love, you know, growing up and you got star Wars and Superman and all these, these adventurous movies with great memorable music, but yeah. I just, they were, they were exciting to play. I mean, they're, they're, you know, as a, as a young trumpet player learning music, occasionally we would do movie music in school with oh. our school orchestra or something like that. And they just, it was always the most fun to perform that kind of music. I could listen to these scores and I would almost relive the, the movie in my head. I could see those scenes in my head as I was listening to the music and Absolutely. You know, listening to a soundtrack to me is, is almost meditative in a way it's, it's listening to that cue or that scene only from the music. And I get to experience it again in a different way. It's like the music is telling the story. And Absolutely. You know, and it's interesting when you say that, I'm sorry to interrupt your train of thought, but yeah. I, I'm old enough, perhaps, I don't know how old you are, but I'm old enough to remember a life before, you know, beta and VHS and DVDs and all this sort of stuff. The only way you could relive a movie was either if it was re-released in theaters or you listened to the soundtrack. So I, I yeah. totally relate to what you're saying. Uh, and, and you know the music was that powerful I, i'm sorry i just i just kind of wanted to share that yeah no it's it you know it is it is one of the most unique things in a in a movie in my opinion and it's also one of the most foreign things in a movie because we don't have music playing as a soundtrack to our lives and and you know it's it, it's an odd thing to underscore something but when you watch a movie and there's no underscore throughout mm -hmm. a scene there is something missing, you know, there, there's an excitement, there's something missing there. And yeah. that, and, you know, I mean, we, this is another conversation we could get into from a filmmaking perspective, but I, <laughs> you know, music to me in a film is everything about the film is a manipulation where you point the camera, how you color the scene, you know, where, where your point, you know, like, are you framing it as a long shot? Are you framing it as a close up on their mouth? Are you, everything is a manipulation. So when a filmmaker or someone tells me that the score is, is manipulating the audience to feel a certain way. Um, and that's why they don't want it there or it's too much. And I will tell them everything you're doing on screen is a manipulation of your audience. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so the music is really no different. Now, there there is a fine line where a music can be intrusive. It can be drawing attention away where you don't want it to draw attention away. You just want it to kind of feel natural. So it's not that music always has to be overbearing. That's not what I'm saying. But everything about a film is a manipulation to tell a story, to take your audience on a journey. And the music is a significant part of that, especially when it comes to the emotion of what's going on. My gosh, you... um. <laughs> This is going to sound horrible, but I mean, you, you and I are on such the same wavelength and Mike, you know, you could have been talking for me. I, God bless you. That's just spot on in how I see things. So I, I appreciate that. It's uh, awesome. It's yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more really. I mean, it's amazing. So 
I don't know if we really got into this or not, but what what was it that led you to your interest in film music then? I mean, was there like, well, you mentioned you mentioned some of the John Williams things, which I know led to a lot of people's interest in film music. Yeah. Um, I, I really think it's just my love, like especially those James Horner scores. It's just loving that music and wanting to be a part of that music and then ultimately wanting to create that music, you know, um, music that that is a part of entertainment. I loving movies and wanting to find a way to be a part of that storytelling process. Mm. Um, and again, I think it took me all the way through college and getting a biochemistry degree to realize that why aren't I doing that thing I love, which is trying to be a part of the movie industry. Yeah, um, yeah, but I, you know, it, it was just always a thrilling thing for me um, to, to, to be around film music as much as I could. Okay. Okay. Well, another, another cue you chose, and I'm not familiar with this one at all. Uh, I guess this is the film is called Dinosaur, if I'm correct. Yeah, it's um, a Disney and- animated film. Although it was one of those computer animations that's trying to look hyper real, like it. it oh, okay, like- yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. Uh, uh, the cue you chose, I guess, is the Egg Travels, and it's uh, written by James Newton Howard. So, m- talk to me a little bit about why that ended up making your list of uh, favorites. You know, it's another it's another example of music telling a story. There's a scene. This entire movie has all, pretty much no dialogue. It's almost entirely music and imagery, and wow. it's it's telling the story of this dinosaur egg that um, falls out of a nest and travels down a river and all this other stuff. And and the way the music tells that story and builds is is really effective and really amazing i can listen to this cue and see that scene from beginning to end the orchestration james newton howard's orchestrations everything are amazing sean murphy's uh, audio engineering is just uh, okay. incredible like you you just you feel that bass drum being hit when it hits you know you feel the impact of that orchestra if there were an example of how i would love my cues to sound mixed and engineered it's a cue like this james newton howard scores are always um they just sonically sound amazing to me Mm -hmm. um and so and and you know and he is a great theme writer like james horner was and so his themes and everything just um are, are 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 memorable for every movie that he does wow you got me excited to hear this let's uh let's sit back and enjoy this this is again the uh, from the film Dinosaur. The cue is called "The Egg Travels," and it's a uh, it's written by composer James Newton Howard.
So, I mean, I didn't really mention the years in, in your, uh, in our introduction, but it strikes me, I guess, apparently you've been kind of doing this for 20 plus years, film composing yep. I'm talking about. I have been. Um, I, I would think that would be an interesting 20 years. And what I mean by that is that technology and all other sorts of things have kind of changed. I mean, I'd be curious, did you ever use a moviola or has it always been digital? And I mean, just, just what kind of changes have you seen in the time that you've been involved with film scoring? Sure. My, you know, my work has pretty much always been digital, but I was definitely on the front end of that. So, um, you know, my, my DAW software of choice this is getting a little nerdy now, um, is digital <laughs> performer, um, which has been around for quite a while. And, um, you, you know, but like my first feature film, I scored nine tenths, which was directed by Bob Degas. Um, we did some edits to that film that was shot on 35 millimeter film. We did some edits to it where he added a couple scenes and we had to go in and add music, rescore a couple scenes to add to his little director's cut of this thing. And he actually spliced them in on a movieola and he brought me in with him to see him do this. Um, and the music was recorded out on an optical track on the film. And, um, that, you know, so I've, I've, I've seen that process and it's been done on films I've worked on. Of course, the, the oldest films I've worked on. Um, but most of the stuff I've done has fortunately been on hard drive in the digital world. Um, although when I was at USC, we had a music calligraphy class, which they don't even mm. teach anymore. You know, we had to learn kind of the old school way of doing things to at least appreciate where we've come from and to know, you know, how things should look on a page and, and what's the proper way to do things. Um, but computer is, it's, it's so much faster and, and so much better in terms of making corrections and changes. And you just kind of have to embrace it because the speed of post-production has gotten so fast that doing things without the computer is just going to, it, it, you're not going to finish. You're not going to be. It's that, it, that, and that makes total sense. And I, and I'm not, I, you know, I know some of my listeners realize this, but I, I'm trying to think, yeah, you, you'll know better than I am, than I do. But sometimes when a cue starts or finish, it has to be, I mean, exactly down to like the one twenty fourth of a second or something like that. I mean, can you, yeah. you, you know what I'm saying? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I use Digital Performer. It has some tools in it that no other software has that if you're not using Digital Performer, you're, it's, it's, you're a little bit shooting with a blindfold on in terms of your tempos. But um, I get to go through a scene and create digital markers of what I want to hit. You know, like like a door opens. I want to start a theme here or something like that. And then I can use Digital Performer to calculate what my tempo should be to hit those markers on a beat. So I can say I have something in my head around 100 beats a minute. So I can search from 95 beats a minute to 105 beats a minute and and say I want to hit these markers. And creatively, I'm thinking it's in this area. Digital Performer will do the math and calculate and say, you know what, if you do that scene at 101.25 beats per minute, which is a very specific calculation that no human would be able to follow, right? But if you do your tempo at that, you will hit all of these markers within a frame or two. And then I create a click track at that very specific tempo. And 
I hit every marker when I want to hit it with whatever I'm, I'm doing. And then all I have to do is change my meters. You know, if you're in four, four time or three, four time or two, four time, and I want a downbeat a theme to start on a downbeat and I'm one beat off, I just create that measure to be a three, four measure instead of a four, four measure. And then the next downbeat is, is a downbeat. I can start a theme on and my tempo is pre-picked. So tempos, oh tempos for a scene are usually picked before you even begin writing a note. And, you know, you kind of have a roadmap of what you're composing into. Yeah. And I want to, I, I want to apologize to my audience. I didn't know there'd be a lot of math today, but <laughs> apparently there is. <laughs> music is incredibly, I mean, that's one of the things I have learned. I don't know a lot about music, but one of the things I have learned is that there's a lot of math involved. Yeah. And you've just illustrated that beautifully. Well, and that's another reason for using computers because there used to be, and we'd learned about this at USC, ClickBooks, which, you know, we're think of right. like an like an eight inch thick printed book of timings by the second of, you know, that related to a tempo and a frame of picture. You know, so if you were at a, a 120 right. click, you were so many clicks, that's like 120 beats a minute, you were... It, it would calculate how many frames of film that was because 24 frames of film is one second of time. Right. And so yep. we would have to calculate these clickbooks. Well, now with the computers, it's, it's all the math is built in and we can just focus on the music and the tempo we want and then let the computer do that math and not have to look it up in some big book. And, wow. um, and it <laughs> makes it a lot easier. Wow. That's amazing. It truly is. I mean, it's just, and, and, and people like myself that don't understand music or have, you know, I mean, we love it, but we don't necessarily understand the mechanics behind it. It's just amazing to hear how it all comes together. You know, I will, I will say it's a, it's a lost art. And I, I, I say a lost art because more and more these days, people are not necessarily composing to picture and and I lament that I, I feel the scores that are the most effective are the ones that are actually written to what is going on on. Screen. Okay. And, and if you don't mind, I'm going to interrupt you because that is a question I have here in the future. Yeah. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it if you don't mind. So absolutely. Uh, you know, cause I really, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, another score that you chose that you wanted to highlight is a film called source code. Mm -hmm. Now you wanted to look at the, we wanted to play the main title and it's written by a composer. I, I have no familiarity with it at all. Uh, his name is Chris Bacon. I was very curious to hear what your thinking was behind including that amongst your list of favorites. Sure. Chris Bacon is a um, composer. He's about, he's about my age or so. Um, he was an assistant to James Newton Howard for many, many years, actually. So he kind of comes okay. from a similar a similar camp of, uh, you know, of, of education, real world education, if, if you want to put it that way. Um, yeah. It's a very, it, it's a very melodic kind of very Bernard Herman-esque uh, main title to a thriller movie. And I love that you don't have a lot of movies these days with a full main title sequence where it's just, you know, your credits and music and imagery and, sets the tone for the entire film. A lot of films now just kind of get into the film and they do a, a main title sequence actually at the end of their movie. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Source code had it at the beginning 
And, you know, a couple of reasons why I picked this one is that Bernard Herman asked that orchestration, the tension it, it sets up for the movie, I think is a great example of how movie music and themes can be used effectively in opening a film. Second, actually this was recorded at the bridge recording studios in Glendale which is now called Silent Zoo Studios. They've they had a change of ownership over the years. Um, huh. But that is the same room that I recorded my Crooked Arrow score in. And we actually recorded these scores right around the same time. So I, Crooked Arrows was the first feature film score they recorded in that room. And Source Code, I believe, was the second. And they were literally with, huh. like, within the same month of each other. So um, so that, you know, it's 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 interesting when you... You know, if you're looking at the logistical production side of it and what rooms were these recorded in, and those rooms kind of have a different sonic signature on certain scores around town and everything else. And um, I thought they did a great job. It's a smaller studio than, say, Sony, um, but it's it's just a great room. And there was a little connection there, so I thought I would share it. You know, and, and, you, and you brought to mind something, too, that I used to love about uh, gosh, I can't remember the last time. I'm guessing maybe 1980 was the last time I ever saw a film like this, but where they would have an overture before the movie started. I loved that. Yeah. I loved that. I think about the black hole. I think about Star Trek that, you know, had these overtures. It was, it was great. I mean, isn't it a shame that that's missing now? It, you know, it is. And I, I again, I don't want to say that every film should have that, but certainly I'd, I would hope that a filmmaker, if they wanted to have that, they would be supported by the studio and letting them have that, you know, and um, there's so much pressure to just get into the movie. And, you know, our audiences today, I think, are are different. They they're a little uh, ADHD, so to speak. Um, they you know, they just kind of want to get right into the action. You know, another thing we used to have, we would have a, a three plus hour dances with wolves movie and there would be an intermission in the middle literally yeah. with a, with an orchestral suite of music. And nowadays they'll just release a three hour movie with no intermission. And that's purely a business decision. I mean, that's, you know, you have an intermission with three screenings a day. That's, that's another hour of time where they Why? could be squeezing in another, um, you know, another screening or something like that. So right. they, the movie theaters themselves just don't want to show it that way. Um, but like, if you buy the dances with wolves, I think it was a Korean release of dances with wolves on DVD. They actually included the intermission music, huh? Um, which is, well, I'd love to have that then. Okay. Yeah. So my audience know, knows I love John Barry and that's one of his finest works. So I would, I would, geez, I would love to have that. Yeah. yeah. So, well, let's, um, we, we kind of alluded to it. We need to play it. This is the, from the film called source code. It's the main title. And it's written by composer Chris Bacon. Let's have a listen and sit back and enjoy.
We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, uh, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask uh, some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's Patreon.com. curious when you were in your younger formative years and I ask this of a lot of people that love film music because I kind of experienced it myself did you did you ever feel like an outsider like you know everybody else is listening to I don't know Elton John or (laughs) band Heart or something like that and you're saying oh I love John Williams and John Barry and Jerry Goldsmith I mean did you ever feel like kind of an outsider? Was that kind of a weird thing to communicate with people? Uh, yes and no. So yes, with all of my friends who were not musicians and no with my friends who were. So, okay. you, you know, I was a band geek growing up. So I was in marching band and concert band and everything else. And um, a lot of my friends, especially being a brass player, like we all loved similar kinds of music. But I will mm. say, you know, I took piano lessons for a decade you know, started in first grade, I ended in, in high school and, um, none of my friends wanted to hear me play Beethoven or Claire de Lune by Claude, <laughs> de Monty, you know, um, they wanted me to play journey, you know, they wanted me to play some, some modern thing at a party. And if I, you know, and so that's kind of one reason why I fell out of love with my classical piano training was that my teacher at the time, you know, she didn't want to teach the modern music. She wanted to teach the classical music. Which, mm. in hindsight, I'm I'm glad I had that. But at the time, it really felt like I was learning a bunch of stuff no one wanted to hear me play. Um, mm. mo- moving music, I think, transcends that. I think movie music is very populist. I think people love movies, and so they then love usually the music associated with the movies they love. Um, and well, it's almost like it's almost like a mesh between. And again, I you know I don't understand or know a lot about music, but it's almost like a mesh between classical music and and current contemporary music does that make sense what i'm saying absolutely and especially even today with our movie music we're having live concerts now at the hollywood bowl with 
Oh yeah. A movie with live score accompaniment. You know, it is, it is the opera of our day. You know, it is, it is the modern mm-hmm. performance equivalent. And if that's a way to introduce classical music and orchestral music to the masses, then I embrace that wholeheartedly. You know, if, if movie music I is know. that, that gateway drug, so to speak. Um, <laughs> Gosh, I love that quote. The, the gate, I'm trying to remember what it was exactly. You said the gateway, gateway drug to orchestral, to, to, to orchestral music. music. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it is film music. So, I mean, it, yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And I've had a couple of experiences of watching live concerts to, to film and it's just been magical. So I understand, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I think it's only, I think it's only fair that we start to play some of the uh, cues that you've written for some of the films that you've worked on. Yeah. And so I'd like to do that right now. Uh, The first one I'm talking about is a film called Crooked Arrows. The cue is uh, just called a theme suite. So I, and, and I, I listened to some of your music and I loved it. I mean, so I'm really excited to share it with my audience. Tell me a little bit about why you wanted to choose that as something to highlight tonight. Crooked Arrows was at the, at the time, probably my biggest feature film um, when I did this in 2012 that I had done at that point. Um, It's, it's a, it was an independently made movie um, that ended up getting picked up by Fox and Sony. Fox did a domestic release. Sony did international release. It had a full on theatrical in theater release around the country. Um, it is a lacrosse movie, which is the fastest growing sport in America. Um, but it's kind of like a mighty ducks for the sport of lacrosse, like an underdog sports movie, you know, ragtag team. That's kind of not doing well. And, um, Brandon Routh is their coach. Uh, Gil Birmingham is Brandon Routh's father. He's, he is a, a half native American, half white, um, you know, son of of Gilbert Hans character who kind of lost loses his way but he he runs the the um, tribe's reservation uh casino and um he's brought he's having issues with the tribe he wants to expand a casino and they won't let him do it unless he gets back to his roots and the way they're going to make him do that is teach the lacrosse team because they call lacrosse the medicine game because it has spiritual meaning um, in the Native American tribes, this entire movie, before people like jump to conclusions, was made to be as authentic as possible. The um, Onondaga Nation in the upstate New York, where kind of lacrosse comes out of, um, funded more than half the mo- the money for this movie. Wow! Um, and everything about this movie was was meant to be authentic. Was was specifically chosen to be authentic. The lacrosse kids in the movie are actually lacrosse players that they taught to act as opposed to actors that they had teach the game of lacrosse. So okay, the, yeah. the lacrosse play in the movie is very hyper real. And some of the actors in the movie are actual college lacrosse players now in college lacrosse. Like they actually huh. this is their sport and they, they do this um, for a living. Um, you know, if you are a lacrosse player if you are in a lacrosse family you probably know about this movie um even though it is a smaller independent film um that happened to get picked up for distribution so we recorded it in los angeles um with a full afm union orchestra it was you know it was 
probably at, like I said, at the time, one of my biggest scores I had done. Um, it was, I standing up there in front of the orchestra, I was describing to them, Hey, you know what this movie was about. And I said, it's kind of like Rudy, but for the game of lacrosse oh. and my entire brass section looks like, Oh, we got this. We were all on Rudy. So, yeah. you know, it, you know, it, to play, uh, and perform with these musicians on this score was, was at the time a dream come true. And, um, you know, it's 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 still a score that I've done that's a little near and dear to my heart. This theme suite was actually written to be the end title credit for the movie. And we recorded it at the time with that intention. And then they decided to put a song over the end title credit of the movie instead of orchestral music. And as a result, this theme suite actually never made it into the movie, even though it's it's a oh, it's an arrangement of things from the movie. It is the sure. first track on the official soundtrack release that we did because it ties up. It really introduces the themes and everything really well. Um, wow. You you will also hear the ESPN Sports Center theme in there. Um, that yeah. was that was officially licensed. We we have permission to to incorporate that. Um, cause there's a scene in the movie where ESPN is, is covering the the championship in the movie. Um, wow. and so we, we recorded that in there with the orchestra as well. So, well, and I'm, and I'm hardly an expert when I say this, but I can remember in gym class, I'm, when I, at one time I was at, attending high school in Maryland and, you know, gym class, we actually played for a couple of weeks. We played lacrosse that man. That is, that's one demanding sport. Just trust me. Yeah. So uh, I actually, I'd love to see this film because I have a little bit of an appreciation about it. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, Let's have a listen to this. This is again from the film Crooked Arrows and it's the theme suite and it's written by our guest, Brian Ralston.
Um, you've kind of alluded to it a little bit, but I just thought I'd maybe ask once again. Sure. Were there, who were your biggest influencers in terms of film scoring? Was there someone, uh, a composer or composers that, you know, you said, wow, I mean, you know, I, I want to emulate that or, or I like their approach or something, you know, you know what I'm saying? So I'm just sure. kind of curious if there was anybody out there that inspired you that way. Absolutely. I mean, James Horner, right? So okay, it, it, I, I really feel like the movies I grew up with were all scored somehow by James Horner. <laughs> and when I think of movies, when I think of stories that I would like to tell as a composer slash filmmaker, storyteller, um, it's in that style. It's, you know, which, which is not necessarily a style. That's the flavor of what Hollywood's doing these days. But, um, there is, there is an orchestrational color. There is a thematic element. There is a storytelling component to what he did. And it just speaks to me. And when I think of my instinct of what to do musically is usually in that vein, it's usually a more melodic orchestral color, like instinct. Um, although every film is different and that's one of the great things about this is that we, you know, we get to make our own rules every, every film we do. So, um, as I try to explore and develop my voice as a composer, um, I'm sure that will continue to evolve and change, but, but my instinct keeps me a little bit in that James Horner wheelhouse, you know, John Barry as well. Uh, you know, John Barry, um, my, one of my teachers used to tell me I used to live in the Lydian world and, you know, Lydian is a, a scale. The Lydian scale is a, is a type of scale you would play on the piano that um, sounds a certain way. You know, if you think of it like, like using only the black keys on the piano, basically. Um, And John Barry used to write things in a Lydian world um, quite often. And that, that tonal structure tends to speak to me. Um, So, yeah. No, I, I, you know, as my listeners will know, I'm delighted to hear that John Barry had some influence. So that's great. And any other, um, be, be, because when I listen to the, the, the cues you sent me, when I listen to them, I hear a lot of melody, which is, I, and I'm glad. Yeah. Because I think melody has kind of disappeared from film scoring for a large, to a large extent. Yeah. Um, and, and any other, uh, there doesn't have to be. I'm just curious. Any yeah. Other I mean, I, that, you know, uh, the other composers, it really kind of depends on the day. I mean, I appreciate a lot of what, you know, Thomas Newman has done. There's certainly things, um, Thomas Newman has a very distinctive voice, I think. And, um, you know, in, in his stuff tends to be very rhythmic. Um, there is melody, but I I think of Thomas Newman scores is mostly color and rhythm. Um, And, you know, and the orchestration of what John Williams does with his stuff is just so lush. John Williams is using jazz chords and jazz, you know, um, harmonies in an orchestral context. And so that's why his stuff sounds so lush and so great. It's because he's using all these like, you know, seventh and 13 chords and all these weird orchestrations. He's got inner moving lines um, that just add to the complexity of what's going on. And that's what makes that sound so lush. And, um, you know, that's, that's always something 
in the back of my head too, is especially like when I think of woodwinds, how can I use woodwinds to color what's going on here? Because so many composers today just kind of default to, you know, melody in the strings, chords in the brass, and we don't need woodwinds. You know, it's just, you know, and it's like, no, there's so much more you can do. And I think that composing style that I'm, that I'm kind of dogging on here comes from playing at the keyboard and you play the foundation chord in your left hand and you do melody in your right hand and you play it in and then you send it off to get orchestrated out. And really what needs to happen is, in my opinion, is you have to write these lines kind of separate. You know, if you're playing them in and that's your composing process, you're going to get chord foundation in the left hand, melody in the right hand, and it's going to be this boring kind of two dichotomy composing. You really need to get into the inner voices and those lines and those melodies and arpeggiate those chords. And some of that touches on orchestration, but it's, it's a skill set that not many people uh, can do well these days, you know? And, and I think a lot of that is, is self-taught composers, composers who come to this kind of all they knew was, you know, a keyboard enter into the computer and they just kind of doing what sounds good and their melodies are great and their chord structures may be unique, but the, the orchestration and the arrangement and the inner voices is usually lacking. And I think John Williams is a great example of how that's done well. Huh? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, another score of yours that you had chosen to highlight, which I want to play right now. This is from the film silent river. The Realization of Being is the name of the title of the cue. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to include that in amongst the you know, cues you wanted to play today. Sure. Silent River um, is a film I'm really proud of, and it's a, very, it's a departure for me musically. It, uh, it's a sci-fi thriller film by filmmaker Chris Chan Lee. Um, Chris in the Asian-American film community is a rock star, so... In 1997, he did a film called Yellow that had a small theatrical release and is really considered one of the first quintessential Asian-American movies. It was a coming-of-age movie at the time. A lot of famous Asian actors in Hollywood today were actually young kids in that movie. Um, and there there was this, they call it the class of 1997 and because that was the year all these films and Justin Lin was in that year. Chris Chan Lee, who I'm talking about, was in that year. And they all had these films that really kind of exploded on the festival circuit and made a name for Asian-American cinema. And um, this is Chris's third movie, Silent River, um, since 1997, which is not, you know, he tends to do passion projects like a decade apart from each other. It's kind of it's kind of odd. Um, but I'm really thrilled I got to work with him on this. Um, it's a small independent movie, but we did this post-production during the pandemic. And, um, you know, I basically recorded most the entire score here in my studio. We had live players on the score, live Los Angeles musicians on the score that came here one at a time and and kind of layered in their parts um, one by one um, through this pandemic process um this cue from the movie is i you know i think just a good example of the themes and the style in the movie it's it's a hard movie to explain 
So Silent River is a very uh, David Lynchian like film. And this, okay. this is the kind of movie that really speaks to Chris Chanley. So it's a, it's a dark sci-fi thriller. Um, the main character in the movie is kind of in a purgatory, but you don't really know that. And as he kind of learns some of these lessons, he's stuck in a hotel and a lot of weird things are happening to him. And it gave us an opportunity in the score to really create a character of the music and the, and the music in this movie plays a role, an important role, almost unlike any other score out there today. It is a character in and of itself. Um, oh, wow. Okay. And, uh, and like I said, we, we were able to record it with live players kind of layering them in one at a time. Um, I used a lot of unique instruments in the score. Um, I used a piano Tron, um, which uh, famed percussionist Emil Richard used. And you would like this. This Pianotron is something that was used on Planet of the Apes, the original Planet of the Apes. So oh, wow. okay. um, it's, it's like an upright piano taken out of its shell and um, there's no keyboard on it. And you play the guts of that piano with the strings and everything, kind of like a percussion instrument. Oh, wow. And we went in okay. and recorded this sounds of it and i made my own library of sounds out of it and used that in the score as one of the layers and textures um behind silent river so there's a lot of believe it or not there's not a lot of synth work in the score there's some but a lot of these textures are organic things that are time stretched and pitch stretched and created you know uniquely for this score so okay fascinating well let's have a listen to this again this is from the film called Silent River, which will be released later this year. The cue is called The Realization of Being, and it's written by our guest tonight, Brian Ralston. So let's have a listen.
you kind of alluded to this earlier, but I'm, I can already in, anticipate your answer to this, but I'd still like to discuss it. Do do you score to the action you see on the screen, or do you score to the emotions that the characters are feeling? The way you ask that question, I would say it's both. But uh, that's what I figured. Okay. Yeah, but to me, in general, uh, what makes the trade craft of of film scoring different and unique than just composing is that it is written to picture. It is written to what is shown on screen. Now, having said that, I want to specify, I don't think a film score needs to always be underscoring what is visually being seen, but it is certainly impacted by the edit of picture. So there is a thing called scoring against picture, right? And in Silent River, we actually yeah, did that yeah. a lot where you're seeing one, the character do one thing, like searching a room, but the music is doing something completely different because it's, it's kind of scoring what's in his head or scoring some <laughs> impending moment that's about to come, right? So, so by saying that I feel music should be scored to picture doesn't necessarily mean that you're like a cartoon underscoring exactly what's going on visually, but that it is impacted by that edit and it is part of the storytelling and commentary process of what's going on. Um, you know, there are composers nowadays that will go and just write music for the sake of music. And then a music editor will cut that up and layer it in underneath the movie. And to me, that's not really film scoring. That's just writing an album of music that you can no different than what you could license off of somebody else's album and having a music editor make those choices, not the composer, and layering them into picture because it kind of works or it helps with the tempo or helps with the mood. And to me, that's what makes film scoring unique is that it was written to the scene, to the picture, that it, it has a point of view that is helping to influence the audience's experience of that scene. Um, and if you didn't write it to picture, then to me, you're not really film scoring. You know, you're writing music and it may be effective, but it's not really film scoring. Well, uh, do, do you ever find that, and I, you know, I don't know what kind of films you've worked on, but do you ever find you're having to compete with the sound effects and, all the other stuff that's going on and that. So, you know, sure. I need to write something bombastic to make sure they can at least hear this. Does that make sense what I'm asking? It does. Um, but there's a lot of, a lot of ways that we try to make it all work out. Right. One is just your communication with the sound designer and, and the mix engineers that you all know what each other's doing. You know, if, if, in the film graduation, there was a scene where there was a big train. These kids were on a train track and they're trying to jump off a bridge as the train is approaching to them playing chicken with a train basically. And I knew the noise of that train was going to be huge as it's coming up and roaring. And so that entire scene, it was a lot of emails back and forth with the sound developer kind of what's the train going to sound like? What is this going to sound like? Cause I want to write something that's complementary to what you're doing so I would keep my music out of the frequency of what that train was. So I'd have really high stuff or really low stuff. So the middle frequency could, you know, of that train could still come through. Oh, we, okay. we deliver our music in what's called stems, which are 
separate instrument groupings, if you were to play, say, all eight stereo tracks together, it sounds like the cue, but it's really split with low percussion sounds, high percussion sounds, brass sounds, string sounds, woodwind sounds, you know, electronic synth sounds. They're all separated out. And what that allows the mixer to do is to split that score and to put some elements in the surround, put some elements to the far right or far left, keep things out of the center channel so the dialogue is always clear and they can mix the music in the surround field so that everything is heard well and you you know the noise of whatever is in the the sound mix like explosions or train noises can all kind of have their own sonic space because we've delivered things in a separate way that they can be separated out um and then and then there's just the principle if it really is a huge explosion or something don't write something to compete with it. You know, just you might sometimes film music is all about the anticipation of an event and not the actual event. So you might be writing music that's building up to an explosion. And then when the explosion happens, the music just, you know, cuts out naturally. And that was intentional because you're never going to compete with an explosion, right? The explosion is always going to win. So you write, you also write to what's going on. And this is just a part of the process in post-production of uh, working with the sound people and the music people and being all on the same page. You know. Wow. I mean, what a, what a terrific description. I appreciate that because it's, I know a lot of, a lot of my listeners kind of have uh, the same reaction to sometimes people overwrite music or they're feeling like they have to compete with, sound effects when you've really given a good description of how you need to approach it. So I appreciate that. Absolutely. Um, Let's see the, the last cue we wanted to play is from a, a cue for a film you did called being Rose. Mm -hmm. The cue is the journey begins. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to include that of uh, one of your favorites today. This is a very different style from anything I've shared thus far. So, um, you know, Crooked Arrows is more traditional orchestral. Silent River is kind of uh, sound design, experimental, horror thriller-like. Bean Rose was a small country band-like score. So we built that score around basically soloists. So we had a solo violin player, which was uh, Belinda Broughton played violin on that. And it's Bruce Broughton's uh, wife. She's the violin player on Bean Rose Journey Begins. Um, We had um, Chris Bleth played Native American Winds for me on the score. Um, My friend Dean Ogden, uh, who lives in Bali, Indonesia, he's David Foster's drummer throughout Asia, basically. Um, He did drums percussion for us. I did... um, the any piano keyboard synth stuff. And then Andrew Sinowak, who's a guitar player, does a lot of Michael Cicchino stuff. Um, Andrew Sinowak did all of our guitars on Bean Rose. And um, and that was it. There, we had five people on the score. Uh, wow. the, the film stars Sybil Shepard, James Brolin, and Pam Greer. Um, I think it's currently playing on Showtime right now. Um, it, it had a theatrical in 2019, and then it's you know now made its way to, to, to home video and streaming. Um, but, you know, Sybil Shepard is an old cop who has learned that she is dying and uh, she wants to go on a final kind of road trip to find her soul and kind of 
kind of come at peace with all of this stuff. And this this story is about a one year period of her life at the end of her life. And lo and behold, while she's trying to go on this road trip to find herself, she ends up meeting James Brolin's character and falling in love, right? You know, as she's dying. And so it's really kind of a heartwarming tale, a little bit sad, but, but at the same time, um, a, a, a really lovely story about these two kind of older um, characters falling in love at the end of their life. Um, and so we recorded this again in Los Angeles, you know, all these scores of mine were all recorded in LA. And I just want to say the LA musicians are just simply amazing. I love working with them. It's, there's nothing like getting up in Los Angeles and going across town and re and recording your music, you know, not having to f fly to another country or do it. It's, um, sometimes you have to do that because of the business of it, but the musicians here are amazing. And for my filmmakers to get to agree to record them in town. Um, it, you know, is is I feel very blessed to have done that on these but, projects. Yeah. And the thing that I'm always amazed at, and again, because I'm, I'm not a musician, I don't understand how it works, but from other composer I've talked to, it's like, okay, so they have the sheet music in front of them. How, how long do you have to rehearse? He said, rehearse. Yeah. yeah. No rehearse. We don't rehearse. They just, they just go. I yeah. mean, and, and it's just phenomenal for me to think about these musicians in LA that are just able to kind of look at a sheet music and make it happen. Uh, maybe they have one run through or something like that, but after that, yeah. it's like, boom, let's go. Yep. Everything you've heard, um, not only from me, but the other cues too, with the other composers, they're pretty much sight reading. You know, that's they're They've never seen yeah. this music before. They come in that morning, it's on the stand and they go and take one. You're probably not going to use, um, because you do kind of have a run through, but sometimes if it's simple enough, you would use, but by take two or three, that's probably, that's probably the one you use, you know? And Which so it's amazing when you think about it, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're yeah. I mean, I, and I don't know what kind of size orchestras you've worked with, but I mean, it could be 40, 50, 70, 90, a hundred people who yeah. have to all be coordinated and, and for them to do it in, in two or three you know, takes or whatever. I mean, I can certainly appreciate that. That's phenomenal. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, time is money. So, you know, it's, it's very expensive to have an orchestra on stage. Those stages cost, you know, probably five to eight grand for a three hour session just for the room itself and in the yeah. engineering. So you don't really have time to rehearse. You know, you're, you're going to spend yeah. the same amount of money rehearsing versus recording. So, over the years, you know, these musicians have gotten so good that they can really knock this stuff out pretty quickly. And, you know, and tomorrow they will be recording a different score with a different composer, with a different style, and they'll do it just the same. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go ahead and play this cue from Being Rose. The, uh, the cue is called The Journey Begins. And once again, it's written by our guest, Brian. And uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy. I think you'll like, like this very much.
Well, Brian, for uh, for those of us that are uh, interested in kind of finding out what's going on with you and, you know, what's in your future and uh, how can they follow you on social media and those sorts of things, do you have uh, anything you can share with us that will help us do that? Sure. I mean, pretty much all of my social media and web presence is my name. So my website's brianralston.com. I have a blog page there where I update on things I'm doing and what's going on. Um, okay. My Twitter is Brian at Brian Ralston. My Facebook, um, I have a personal page, which is Brian Ralston. Um, but I also have a musician page, which is Brian Ralston Composer. Um, Instagram, Brian Ralston. You know, it's pretty much all my name. So it makes me easy <laughs> to find um yeah uh, you know the the two films i have kind of uh being released now the silent river which we spoke of there's another film i have called him and her which um is a small indie um kind of love story between two people um that had a small theatrical release in december um but they are still doing some festival runs uh this year and hopefully by next fall it will hit the streaming world as well um, well, yeah, of, I mean, you know, to say the least, it's been uh, an unusual couple of years for <laughs> films and theatrical releases. So, I mean, I, it has been. I know my audience can understand that. So it, It's amazing anything even gets released anymore. Uh, You're right. <laughs> uh, and, and you know what? I think we're getting back. Fingers crossed we're getting back to normal. So hopefully things will turn around soon. L- listen, so. Brian, I mean, I can't. I can't thank you enough. I've just in, thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I really have. Me too. Uh, I, I I love your work, and I and I and I love your kind of attitude towards uh, film scoring and those sorts of things. So I hope our listeners will seek you out and try to find out exactly what you're doing more. And and I hope you've enjoyed the experience as much as I have. I have absolutely, and thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure, Brian. Listen, with that, uh, I'm just going to say again, I want to thank our uh, patrons who are helping to support the program. We'll have a little bit of extra conversation with uh, Brian for our patrons only. It's exclusive to them. Um, and to all of you, thanks for listening to the program. Please like and subscribe to it, if you will. And uh, listen to our uh, uh facebook page what's the score where we give you all kinds of updates and those sorts of things so anyway with that i'm just going to say this and that is that my name is frank r wilson my time's up i thank you for the years thanks for listening to what's the score